It took us longer to mention Star Wars than I thought. <laughs> like, Fair enough. Props to us. <laughs> You're listening to EmpiroCast. Anarchy is what students make of it. Today is a most auspicious day as it's the last episode of season one. No! (laughs) For the subject discussion, Dylan will sit down with our special guest to discuss economics for public policy. But first, all four intrepid hosts of EmpiroCast are going to do a celebratory final rundown of IR issues we've been following. Dylan, would you like to tee off? Certainly. (laughs) So my first semester at Melbourne Uni, I did some research on Mexico's war on drugs for the Latin America and the world class. And just prior to the class, the most famous cartel leader in the world at the time, Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo, or Shorty in Mexican slang, was extradited to the U.S. for prosecution. He's now serving a life sentence. But he'd escaped two Mexican prisons, and the stories behind those escapes are amazing. Like, particularly the second one. He literally had a mile-long tunnel dug underneath the shower of his cell so he could escape while he was incarcerated. This this was a maximum security prison in Mexico, so it was a pretty embarrassing episode for authorities. Anyway, just recently, around 30 Mexican soldiers and law officers captured one of his sons in the state of Sinaloa, and what happened afterward blew my mind. A swarm of cartel enforcers mobilized, and there was a shootout that ended in the Mexican authorities surrendering the younger Guzman and allowing him to go free. Wait, what? Yeah. How did they let El Chapo's son go? That that just sounds insane. President Obrador, he goes by AMLO, argues, he argued that this was done to stop bloodshed and protect lives because the city just turned into a hornet's nest once they captured him and all these cartel came out of nowhere and were shooting up the place, lighting things on fire. It was just wild to me that the state... You know, the only actor with a monopoly on legitimate violence, if there's such a thing, gave up in the face of superior firepower from the cartels. Like, I'm not saying I disagree or agree with the decision, as there was innocent people who could have been caught up in the violence. I'm only saying it's a surprising outcome. So what is Mexico's strategy right now for dealing with these drug cartels? Uh, So AMLO has diverged from the path of his predecessors, Enrique Peña Nieto and Felipe Calderón. In 2006, um, Calderón declared war on drugs and started using military assets to fight the cartels instead of just the police. So recently, AMLO said the previous strategy turned the country into a graveyard. Like that was the quote. And he said, we're not doing that anymore. We're not going to be fighting fire with fire. We're going to try reasoning. And it's interesting in part because the government's ceding the authority to use violence and it's acknowledged it's acknowledging that there are internal actors that can overpower the government right so what really struck me in researching the topic was that different drug trafficking organizations have relationships with particular political parties so if a local official comes into power in a region where their party has not historically speaking been friendly with the cartel they're at a higher risk of assassination So the obvious implication is that to survive those kinds of situations, as a politician, you need to either eliminate the cartel or find a way to coexist. And eliminating the cartel could be done through giving them incentives to abandon their work for a more legitimate enterprise or just trying to kill them or arrest them all. So Calderon and Peña Nieto tried the latter option. But as AMLO said, it just increased the levels of violence and killing in the country. And military involvement in police work resulted in various human rights abuses. Whenever authorities are able to neutralize the head of a cartel like they did with El Chapo when they arrested him, 
the drug trafficking organizations splinter into different groups, and there's infighting over turf and who's going to get leadership positions. So these organizations are a bit like the Hydra in that sense. Cut off one head, a few more grow. I mentioned in episode zero, I was a classics <laughs> nerd. Um, if so, if you're going to try and work to reduce incentives to join the drug trade, there's got to be an economically viable alternative to the drug trade for people just looking to make a living, right? So just to connect this a little bit more to international relations, like Mexico isn't producing and moving drugs entirely for domestic consumption. Americans in 2016 spent, by one estimate I saw, $150 billion on cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and marijuana. Many countries like Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, they also produce drugs that end up going through Mexico or the Caribbean to reach drug markets in the U.S. and Canada. So AMLO's response to the Sinaloa shootout may undermine his other North American neighbors' faith in his government's ability to disrupt the flow of drugs north. Sonny, I understand you were going to talk to us a little bit about Pakistan, which, as we all know, is one of the world's most geostrategically significant states and its ongoing kind of struggle with democracy. Could you give us kind of a brief overview of Pakistan's internal system? So in short, Pakistan was created in 1947, and, and in its 72 years of existence, it has had 35 years of direct military rule. Importantly, the periods under where Pakistan has had democratically elected governments, the military continues to indirectly influence and rule the country behind the scenes, or what is known as a power-sharing formula between the governments and the establishment. With this in mind, despite having a five-year term for its prime ministers, Pakistan has had almost 20 prime ministers, excluding caretaker prime ministers. Importantly, if the establishment feels any prime minister is not obeying their commands, the elected prime ministers are either removed from office or put into jail. And here I would also like to elaborate a bit on the history of Pakistan's first military dictatorship to provide some context. So the constitution of 1956 was the first constitution adopted by independent Pakistan. According to this constitution, in 1958, Pakistan's first adult franchise basis elections, or one-person-one-vote elections, were called. Crucially, it was when the campaign for this election was in full swing that the military took over under the command of Field Marshal Ayub Khan. This was Pakistan's first coup d'etat. Field Marshal Ayub Khan said that politicians are corrupt and he started anti-corruption cases against civil politicians. He then created his own party called the Convention League and any civil politician who surrendered to him and the military, military's orders were able to join his party, whereas those who resisted him and the military's interference in Pakistan's political sphere were put into jail or removed from politics. As a result, Pakistan's first proper elections um, on a one-person, one-vote basis were not held until 1970, despite being created in 1947. In short, this formula of using anti-corruption as a slogan to gain power and control silence Civilian politicians was also adopted by General Zia and General Musharraf under their military dictatorships. And over time in Pakistan, civilian supremacy has continuously been shrinking. The present government of Imran Khan and his Pakistan Tehrike Insaf has surrendered more civil power than any previous civilian governments in Pakistan. Under Khan's civil institutions continue to have reduced space for civil leadership and power. Okay, so did... The Pakistan establishment play an influential role in influencing the July 2018 elections when uh, Mr. Khan became prime minister? 
Yeah, definitely. So in the July 2018 elections, the current Pakistani establishment implemented the same formula of staying behind the scenes and used the former cricketer-turned-politician Imran Khan as a frontman to run Pakistan according to their will. According to multiple independent observers, Khan was brought to power with the full support of the Pakistan establishment. More specifically, there are strong allegations of pre-election, election day and post-election rigging and manoeuvring by the establishment to help Khan win. Importantly, during this election campaign, the establishment influenced the National Accountability Bureau in which they convinced multiple electable member parliamentarians from other parties to switch over to Khan's Pakistan Tehreek Saf. In light of this, those member parliaments from other parties who refused to switch loyalties and were vocal against Imran Khan in the establishment were put into jail. However, those who sided with the establishment and Imran Khan, and despite having multiple corruption charges against them, remain not only free and untouched, but also hold key positions of power under Imran Khan. In short, justice is selective for the establishment. Those who oppose the establishment and Imran Khan are tried in the courts, whereas those who side with the establishment and Imran Khan remain free. I'd also like to briefly mention that under Imran Khan, press freedom has severely crippled. More specifically, the establishment directly regulates media organisations and their discourse. For instance, if any media organisation has a journalist or publisher who seeks to critique the establishment or Imran Khan's government, the establishment puts pressure on the media owners to fire those critical journalists or published. Publishers. Over a dozen leading journalists have been fired from their television shows and are now running their independent YouTube channels. Um, and many journalists who were previously critical of the government and the establishment have softened their tone under pressure and some have even started to side with the government. In short, there is little space for dissent under Imran Khan's government. How, we're all IR nerds here, <laughs> how has Khan's leadership affected Pakistan's foreign policy? Um, so to provide some context, I think it is important to mention that under the former government of Nawaz Sharif and his Pakistan Muslim League Noon, between 2013 and 2018, Pakistan had moved away from the US and sought to develop closer ties with China, in particular since 2017. Similarly, Pakistan had also moved away from its historically close alliance with Saudi Arabia and instead moved towards Turkey. However, since Imran Khan got elected, Pakistan has again switched back to forging closer ties with the United States and Saudi Arabia. Also, to elaborate a bit on China, the previous government under Nawaz Sharif made a historical agreement with China worth more than $50 billion called CPAC, which is a China-Pakistan economic corridor. Due to this agreement, the construction for a number of infrastructure projects had commenced, such as roads and energy projects. As a result, Pakistan's economy was growing rapidly and GDP growth touched close to 6% after around 15 years. It was also the second time since 1970 when Pakistan's GDP growth was higher than its inflation rate. Due, due to this growth, Pakistan's current account deficit started going up as Pakistan's exports heavily rely on imports. CPEC's energy projects also helped largely solve the issue of load shedding in Pakistan. This is because through CPEC, cheap energy was provided to Pakistan's industry. Moreover, the previous government had also started addressing the issue of current account deficits by making adjustments in Pakistan's import and export duties. However, the present government, under the influence of the United States, disclosed the confidential CPEC contracts to the IMF at the displeasure of China. So instead of going with the growth-driven approach adopted by the previous government, under the influence of the United States and the IMF, the present government, under Imran Khan, has stalled Pakistan's economic growth. And here, um, I would like to end by mentioning the relevance of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in, pa in Pakistan's shift in foreign policy. Upon his murder, Imran Khan and his government did not raise their voice, nor did they participate in any boycotts. 
As a result, Pakistan's silence over Khashoggi and Imran Khan helped Pakistan repair and strengthen its ties with Saudi Arabia. In turn, the Saudis also gave Pakistan a $3 billion loan to help restabilize Pakistan's foreign reserves. And Saudi Arabia was also influential in then helping Pakistan and America rebuild and strengthen their alliance that had weakened under the previous government. So, Kate, I understand you're pretty interested in outer space, and this year we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 space mission. Can you tell us what is different about space today compared to 1969? Yeah, so essentially a lot has changed in outer space since 1969, and I've kind of categorized outer space into two separate eras. So we have Space 1.0, which would be the Apollo missions in the 20th century, as well as Space 2.0. So Space 1.0 has been characterized by Melkin Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute as space programs that are large, few and expensive. So this means that space technology and research was incredibly costly, it was state-based and it resulted in large space missions requiring extensive resources. Today, however, we're in Space 2.0, which is described as the small and the many, with space programs having shrunk in budget and progress in technology, allowing for smaller space tech, such as satellites. Furthermore, Space 2.0 has seen many more states and even private companies join the space race. One of the most revolutionary private companies of this area is SpaceX and Elon Musk. SpaceX had its Dragon spacecraft mission rocketing the private company into becoming one of the four successful deployments and returns of an orbital spacecraft. So it joined the ranks of the United States, China and Russia. Another breakthrough as well for Space 2.0 is the creation of CubeSats. So CubeSats are nanosatellites measuring at about 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres and they provide a cost-effective platform for other states to gain space capabilities. A really cool example of this is India. So in 2017, India deployed 107 CubeSats in one single rocket, which at the time set the record for the most deployed in one rocket. Therefore, since Apollo 11, space has become more democratised with more states able to gain space capabilities, but also more privatised with the addition of private companies entering space. So just putting on my IR and international law hat on for a moment, how do you manage all these non-state actors in outer space? So under international law, there are four global commons. These are the atmosphere, Antarctica, the high seas and outer space. So the global commons are resource domains and areas that lay outside of political reach of any one nation. So the international community has attempted to govern outer space with the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which enforces that the use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries, with an emphasis on norms of equality. But, as discussed, Space 2.0, not all the actors are states. And governing space has become a lot more complex. And if there's anything we've learned in this course is that you can't govern private companies, even states you kind of struggle to govern, but private companies are kind of really up there with not being able to govern them correctly. Therefore, current space norms and laws are unable to successfully govern the challenges faced by outer space, as they're still kind of rooted in the space laws that existed in 1.0. So in order for space to be governed successfully, the frameworks need to be adapted to suit the hurdles created by space 2.0, specifically the challenges posed by the proliferation of private companies. So what challenges does the international community face in this new era of outer space? Yeah, so former Deputy Secretary of Defense in the United States, William Lin, in 2010, described space as congested, competitive and contested. So the first C, congested, is related to the tens of thousands of objects orbiting 
outer space that are large enough to be tracked. However, it's the unknown smaller debris that are invisible to sensors that make life a lot more difficult for outer space. So the more states and companies we have in space, the more space debris there is. Space debris has the potential to disrupt capabilities already in space as their orbit could come into contact with vital satellites such as those that tell us the weather, offer military support for conflicts, support GPS systems, the internet, and so much more. Like, debris could stop our Netflix, which... No. <laughs> you needed to do that like Darth Vader in Revenge. No. God, let's not mention that movie. Sorry. It took us longer to mention Star Wars than I thought. So, like, Fair enough. Props to us. So the second C is competitive, which is states, which is space becoming increasingly competitive due to the aforementioned privatization and democratization of space which has seen an increase in space capability states as well as private companies, and finally, contested. So until 20 years ago, the US was an unchallenged space power. They've kind of been unchallenged until 20 years ago in every domain, more or less. But the end of the 20th century saw Russia and China really amp up their space powers, and then you had the space 2.0 revolutions with the Elon Musks overtaking the United States. So therefore, dominance of outer space is up for grabs, which is cool, but also kind of scary simultaneously. Super scary. Yeah. So currently, China and private companies are leading the way. Australia only just got its own space agency last year in July. And I know I've spoken a lot about Indo-Pacific geopolitical rivalry on this podcast, but outer space is just another stage for states to compete for power. But outer space, it's not just states competing, it's also private companies. Let's move on to Voya. And if there's one thing I know about Voya is that she loves electronic and techno music. So how does that in any way combine with your love of IR and your political interests? Okay, so I'm pretty excited about this one. Um, When you hear the words such as techno, house or rave, you might automatically think party and drugs and anything hedonistic. Uh, You might think about that club Berghain in Berlin you've read about, which is so famous for its hard selection and the secrecy that that surrounds it. You might think about festivals, such as Rainbow here in Australia. When some of you think about techno, you might imagine what you think is the same repetitive sound of boom, 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 boom. And you wonder, what is and why is that a thing? Well, let me share that thing with you. So as an IR student, one of my biggest interests is obviously politics, international politics. Well, you get the drill. I like to talk a bit about my other love, though, because as much as I'm split between two nationalities, being Norwegian and Polish, well, my hobbies are quite split as well. So besides politics, I geek out on music. And of course, I mean, most of us do. But I have an even more specific one, which Kate mentioned, which is techno and the whole techno subculture. Therefore, I've decided to put together these two today and tell you and argue that as much as most things in our lives are political, well, so is techno. It always has been. So how exactly is techno political? So let me go a bit backwards. So um, most people associate techno with Europe. And whenever techno comes up in a conversation with me, people always say, you know, they say, well, that's pretty obvious. You're European, so of course you love techno. Well, actually, the origins of techno date back to mid-late 80s in Detroit, the United States. And it was a protest and a byproduct of African-American citizens in very neglected neglected suburbs of Detroit. It started as a very much an underground movement, a resistance, a protest. The people of the movement officially branded this music as techno in 88, 
to differentiate it from the other popular at the time growing genre, which was called house music, which grew in Chicago, which was also very connected to the queer underground community. However, techno eventually did not really get picked up in the United States, not as much as house, but it did in Europe, and that really fast, actually. Uh, with that came also a promise of a safe space for the LGBTQ communities, and it moved very quickly into London underground clubs, and by the end of the 80s, it was also picked up in Western Germany, which is now known as the, well, Berlin is known as the capital of techno. So after the fall of the Berlin Wall, an impressive illegal raving scene emerged where abandoned factories, plants, even bunkers suddenly became clubs. This raving was a very important part in the two young groups from two sides of Berlin coming together, raving with unity and love. And this was a part of the reunification as well. And this is where I'm going to one of my points. As I was thinking on perhaps discussing the late elections in Poland and, you know, the rise of the far right and populism in Europe, I thought I could give you some insights from within the resistance. So today we have seen techno become a counterpart to growing far right movements in Europe and especially in Berlin. So last year in 2018, huge demonstrations erupted in Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. These demonstrations started after a famous techno club called Bassiani had had police officers with machine guns storming the club in a drug raid. After this, suddenly thousands of people gathered just in the front of the Georgian parliament, putting on techno and blasting it from enormous speakers and dancing and protesting. At the same time, fascist Georgian counter-protesters arrived attacking these demonstrators, um, calling them sodomites and drug dealers. Well, the Bassiani Club had become a representation of acceptance and freedom in a conservative society, not just in Georgia, but also in, a, in the wider region. Buses from neighboring countries, such as Armenia or Azerbaijan, would come with full-on ravers. Techno represented a way of freedom for people who were also living in authoritarian regimes, such as, we know, Azerbaijan is. These countries are also very conservative, and LGBTQ communities are widely repressed by the society. In Kiev, on the other hand, the capital of Ukraine, there's a club called Schema. It was born in a time of the famous Maidan protests, widespread militarization, increased anxiety about the war in eastern Ukraine, a counter-revolution, an economic crisis, widespread corruption that is a big issue in Ukraine, and thousands of Ukrainians migrating westwards. Well, these young ravers, which you could call very poor, considered economically poor ravers, are staying and they're creating a techno-raving culture with a voice to be heard. A space where feminism and anti-fascism can meet, away from the surrounding reality of Ukraine's often very far-right youth. These are global movements where multiple countries around the world, especially with repressed LGBTQ communities, are trying to create safe spaces through techno events, such as in countries also like Kazakhstan, Brazil, Poland, and as I mentioned, Ukraine, Georgia, but also Russia. As techno and especially house were born and popularized in queer communities, it is important to stress the relation between the two. And the beauty of the whole subculture is that the every person can feel safe in being and expressing their true selves without judgment or hatred. That is freedom and respect for individuality, gender, sexuality and ethnicity, which also means that everyone in the scene should dance and breathe in the atmosphere of love, colors, inclusivity, safety 
a mutual respect without the fear of standing next to someone full of hatred and prejudice. That is why I believe with what we've seen in Georgia, Germany, and many other, that music, and in, in this case, techno and electronic music, which is so intertwined with our generation and the generations to come, I'm sure, will and can play an important part in changes that are to come. I can promise you, where there's pride, where there's a climate change protest, you will hear techno. Even just a couple of days ago, there were huge protests in Lebanon, and you could hear a full-on rave. <laughs> and these were serious protests. Uh, but still, young people came out, and this is a way also of getting people, especially young people, to get out. The culture surrounding it is, is so much more than a bunch of partygoers. And it really is a protest of youth's anxieties with the world's issues that we face around the world right now. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting topic to discuss on. I wish we had the intellectual property rights to, like, sandstorm or something like that. <laughs> That's the proper way to go It would be a that. good moment right now to put it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we'll turn to discussing economics for public policy. As per the handbook entry... The course introduces students to the economic principles and framework used by economists to consider issues of public policy. The policy areas likely to be covered will be taken from public finance, industry policy, competition policy, microeconomic reform, taxation, and income distribution, as well as health, education, and infrastructure provision. I wonder if there's anything it doesn't cover. <laughs> the emphasis is on current issues, and so the actual policies covered may vary in response to current events. The assessment is comprised of two written assignments and a two-hour exam at the end of the semester. Important to note here that in order to successfully complete the subject, students must earn at least a 50% pass on the final exam. According to the handbook, the subject is offered during semester one. In order to take us beyond what the subject guide says, I am joined most graciously by my friend and colleague, Lisa Liu. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Dylan. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being here. Lisa, can you give a brief introduction? Who are you? What, uh, what's your concentration in the MIR? Uh... Yes. Um, so this is my last semester mm. of the IR program. I'm doing a 100 points program. Mm. So it, its duration is full two years. 200-point program, right? 200 points, yes. And um, uh, so, as you know, that we have two different um, streams within the IR program. Mm -hmm. um, there are uh, international security and international political economy and um, international governance and law. Mm -hmm. So my particular interest has always been on econs, economics, and finance. That just happened since the start of the whole program. So uh, my path has been set pretty clearly. Thank goodness we've got you in here to explain economics to me oh, again after having taken the Yes, we <laughs> the had the subject. subject together. <laughs> I mean, we went through a lot because it's, it, yeah, it was a pretty fundamental like economic study. Yes, and I had zero background going into it. So I wanted to ask you, we've got three guiding questions here. Yes. What is it, I suppose you've partially touched on it already, but mm -hmm. what is it that specifically drew you to this subject? Or uh, alternatively, you could answer, what is it that you wanted to do or understand that you hoped this subject could help you with? Um, so before taking this subject, uh, I was doing a bit of a CFA training, which is a financial analyst training. Mm -hmm. And there was one um, component within 10 units 
that specifically just focused on economics, both macro and micro. So、um, after reading the handbook, I knew this subject has been focused heavily on microeconomics. And if you compare the economic studies with other undergrad undergrad subjects,、mm-hmm. it will be fairly fundamental, maybe just year one. But、um, the the good thing about this subject is it specifically focused on public policy.、Mm. So、um, as we are IRers <laughs> or whatever you want to call us, <laughs> it's it's funny to、um, always discussing international relations between different states.、Mm. And after all, we are a very state centric point of view. We often、right. offer those state centric point of view. But if you're gonna Think think about that that as a micro level of economics of how states trying to trade with each other or doing financial、mm-hmm. transactions,、mm-hmm. and if you、uh, think about that way, and public policy will be the micro thing, the micro、mm-hmm. counterparts to analyze and unpack how does the economy and financial institutions work together within one state. Right. Yeah, I. Had zero economic background coming into this subject, and I thought, you know, when when you if you want to be an informed voter or just member of society, you listen to the news and you have people talking about all these different aspects of the economy. And I felt very powerless over my head, like they were just speaking a foreign language. Exactly, exactly. You know, so I thought, okay, if I'm if we're going to get into international relations. Any kind of program coordination or conflict between states, you know, there's economics behind it,、mm-hmm. you know. So I thought this would be an empowering course to take or subject to take. Excuse me. Yes.、Um, so for you, what was the most interesting or perhaps the most impactful concept or lesson that you、um, had in this course that you were exposed to in the subject? Yeah. So throughout the twelve weeks, we covered a lot of things. It was only twelve weeks. It was only twelve weeks. It felt like seven years. <laughs> I really struggled in this one. I not gonna lie, I struggled a bit, <laughs> but I、uh, came out and learned a lot.、Mm. So especially with the final exams, that really helps to crush everything into a two-hour exam and test you on your knowledge within、mm. spontaneous way. So、um, for me, I guess the most rewarding part、um, will be the discussion, the discussion of week eleven, focused on、uh, monetary policy. As you know, like recently, the U.S.-China trade war has brought us to a lot new different territory,、right. to the currency war potentially,、right. and the、uh, the discussion about currency. Uh, monetary policy and、mm. different currency and potential currency wars with the、um, manipulation of exchange rate, or maybe the the adoption of exchange rate policies by different states.、Mm-hmm. That's extremely、uh, useful to me. And also,、mm-hmm. we focus specifically just on、uh, the the Australia Federal Reserve and talking about how does that nominal interest rate and Uh, actual interest rate work through open market operations, and how does that affect the currency rates? That's super interesting. If any students want to learn more about how、uh, international relations are going to be today, especially with the trade wars that 
promoted by Trump or mm. his administration, you should go to this class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also take other classes as well, like political economy or governing money and finance. They're all good subjects. Be careful, Lisa. We might ask you back to talk about these other subjects as well. For sure. <laughs> I'm always happy to help. <laughs> um, I, f- I feel like for me, the most interesting concept was back home in Seattle, but you also hear about it in places like San Francisco or New York, um, people are often talking about the price of housing. Mm. And so a lot of people will call for a price ceiling. More specifically, I know after this subject, a binding Mm. price ceiling. Yes. Right? And when you hear this notion of, oh, the price for housing won't go above this certain amount set by the government, Mm -hmm. people who are possibly struggling financially, they think, hey, that's great. But with price ceilings, one really significant consequence is that there's no incentive for companies to build new housing. So prices are high because demand is high. All else being equal, firms are going to want to make money in this market, right? And they do so by meeting the excess demand and building new apartment buildings or houses. As more apartments get built, demand goes down and so does the price. But by putting a limit on the price, the government removes incentives for private companies to build housing and help reduce the prices. But something that troubled me was this notion that money is the only way economics seems to know how to measure how much individuals value something, not time or some other metric. And that goes back to the modern challenge of the whole democratic system. Oh boy, that's a way bigger yes. <laughs> subject than we like the politicizations, the rise of populism that happens around the world, that all goes back to the fundamental economic problems. Which you can't even begin to talk about unless you have a basis of education. And that's what this subject Subject was for me. Yes. Um, As far as our third question, Mm -hmm. we may have just touched on it just now, but why should somebody in not even necessarily just the IR program, I think it's open to it's part of the school of economics, but um, yes. Why should somebody take economics for public policy? Let's let's boost demand for yes. the subject. For the subject, yes. We want excess demand. <laughs> we need that definitely. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, so there are a couple things that I would like to raise. Uh, first, um, as I was studying for my CFA test. Those economic studies with lots of models and functions and algebra that you're going to do, that's way beyond the ordinary people should master if you're Mm. not going to that industry or focusing on uh, finance or economics in the future. So um, just as a medium boulder who's going to vote for the next government, I guess it's always important to have those fundamental understanding, like basic understanding of how the world works in the economic way. Yes, I was just going to add to that. like Exactly. This subject was just specifically focusing on public policy, which mm-hmm. is related to our life day by day. Yes, I was going to say that I, I can't think of any other subject off the top of my head that really gave me a completely new lens with which to look at things in everyday life. No. You know, just getting on the tram when I see people fail to touch on their mic, I think, free rider problem. <laughs> this is why we can't have public goods. Yes, that's <laughs> you know? right. So it's it's just so interesting to you go into a supermarket, you think, oh, okay, I think Professor Richard said something like they'll change prices at certain time of day or 
just you, you apply the things you hear and you see it everywhere. Exactly. You know, it's not so much. I'm, I don't mean to poo detached on. from our yes life yes yep. I was about to bash yep. theory but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's something you see in everyday life yes yeah. exactly right well thanks again for stopping by Lisa to discuss economics for public policy with me no worries at all that's it for season one of Empirocast 2019 we hope you enjoyed listening to us and if you want to be involved next year email admin at empiro.com.au to get in touch with the new team Dylan, Voyer, and I are going to be graduating. Hooray! Got to find a job. <laughs> but Sunny will be remaining on board for season two, 2020. So whilst we're all going, Sunny will still be here to take the reins. So next year, um, I'll be on board for EmpiroCast. I'm hoping to grow our podcast more. Um, I want to introduce a career section. Um, I hope to also get more um, MIR students involved for our um, subject discussions and also possibly the global rundowns. Um, if there's a particular topic that students are really passionate about. Um, Don't be uh, shy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah. So Dylan, did you want to share any of your experiences um, about EmpiroCast this season? Yeah. Uh, it, this was a really great opportunity because with research papers, you know, you, you spend ideally a couple of weeks working on it in practice sometimes just a couple of days <laughs> and then Being you s- real here <laughs> yeah you, you send it in to turn it in and you know it it can go one of a hundred ways from there you can never look at it again you could fix it up and try to get it published but with and it's like two pieces of assessment per semester but with this when you're preparing for like a subject or a discussion it's a couple of intense days and you want to be up to date you want to consider it from different angles and then you're actually looking at another human being and talking about it. And that just makes it more human, more personable, I think. And I really enjoyed the process. Um, I'm not really OCD, but I love picking at little details. So doing the <laughs> editing was a lot of fun. And it's if anybody's interested in doing that, um, contact Empyro or get in touch with me. Um, it, it's a lot of fun. And gosh, after researching for an essay, it's kind of soothing. It's like yoga to just be cutting like spaces or hiccups or mispronunciations. Sounds suspicious. <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, okay. No, it's, it's, yeah, this was a great experience. And I was, I was really lucky to come on board. I think we've started something really great here. And what I'm hoping for, and I'm glad Sunny is continuing it. Um, is to pick it up and, you know, just let it kind of evolve. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is this is made by students for students. And, you know, one thing is talking about the subjects, which I wish that we had something like that when I started Mm -hmm. my master's. And second, I mean, the whole idea of these rundowns, as we talked about earlier, was we were all finding topics that we are passionate about and we like to geek out on. But that's the beauty of IR, that everyone in IR is passionate. So it's not just that we, the four of us here, know stuff and, you know, we feel like we're smarter than you. (laughs) Um, The whole idea is that everyone has something to share. And as Kate was mentioning before as well, uh, it's the whole idea is to find topics that are maybe not in the mainstream medias and spark an interest. That's why I'm, I'm sure there's so many of you which have these topics, which I would love to hear. And although I'm graduating, I'm still, you know, going to continue listening to this podcast and be a big fan of it. And um, remember to subscribe on SoundCloud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like and subscribe and share and all that stuff. I'm not very good at this. Uh, But anyway, I'm very glad that I could be here. And it's uh, kind of also marking 
the end of this journey <laughs> in my masters yeah. and yeah shout out to you know international students don't be shy yeah. come on you know we're not native speakers but we we manage because we're here so that means we manage I also I totally agree we're all passionate but I think it would be kind of funny to hear like a lukewarm conversation about like Kashmir or Israel like I don't really know it's like no it's it's yeah And also just I wanted to mention that we've also been very lucky with some of our topics like I think that all our topics were on point you know Sunny and I were talking about Ethiopia and Eritrea and a week later you know a Nobel Peace Prize oh, that was yeah. such a lucky yeah. coincidence you know it, <laughs> uh, we've had people come up to us about our rundowns saying you know oh i never never heard about this topic mm. now i'm going to read more on it mm. and yeah that's the whole idea so i'm again i'm looking forward to hearing you guys share that and spark an interest with me because there's lots of things i would like to learn more about we actually coordinated the press release with ethiopia yeah. <laughs> with the with the nobel peace prize Definitely. in oslo they waited for our go ahead for yep. sure finger on the pulse <laughs> so what about you kate what do you think I was just I mean I'm a massive podcast nerd so to have something that we all did together that was just out there in the universe it was like a really fulfilling experience not to get too deep but I think with <laughs> essays you kind of send them to turn it in and they're just like off in like all of the words it's with done. anyone yeah mm-hmm. but with this we can kind of share it we can reflect with other people with our family with our friends it's like this real time capsule of what we've been engaging in, what our subjects are, what we're interested in, what's happening in international relations as well. I think we kind of did it with the season so that if another team wants to do something different, they can. Mm. This is Empire. This is just a start. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's anarchy is what students make of it. We can mm. kind of do whatever we want here. Also, i just like to thank our special guests for coming on board. Oh, for yeah. ta- oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> for taking the time out of their studies. We're all really busy. I think with grad students, we all have jobs. And also sharing their reflections exactly. I mean that was super interesting to hear other students yeah definitely and because this is season, it's like a trial run they yeah. can, they don't know what they're signing up for they <laughs> came in and everyone said it was a lot of fun I'm yeah. speaking for them but it's true <laughs> we can speak for them that's yeah, fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> Also, thanks to our listeners. I know we've all gotten a lot of feedback, a lot of engagement from the cohort here at the MIR. And it's because of you guys that we've kind of kept going. If there was two listeners, that would be slightly disheartening and we'd begrudgingly continue. Maybe <laughs> well, we get... are four people, so that's already four <laughs> listeners. Yeah, half of, half of us aren't pulling our weight <laughs> if there's two listeners. <laughs> Sorry, because of you guys, we're able to function and... Without students listening, then it probably would be a monotone explanation of international relations. Yeah, but I, I think I've had a wonderful experience this season and I'm really looking forward to um, growing this podcast next season. So please get in touch. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Empirocast. Anarchy is what students make of it. Future and past episodes of Empirocast can be found on our website at www.empiro.com.au. To get in touch with the Empiro committee, please email admin at empiro.com.au. Empiro is proudly affiliated and supported by the Graduate Student Association at the University of Melbourne. Empirocast is an independent production and the views expressed by the host and featured students do not represent in any way the views of the University of Melbourne or the Graduate Association.